Hi everybody and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Chris Sacknesum. Chris, how are you doing this? Is it morning still? Yes, it is. Oh, we've been talking. Yeah, we've been talking for quite yeah. some time. Well, you know, it, it, it's yeah. No, it feels it feels morningish. Uh, yeah, pretty good. Yeah. The, the the day is clear after some. We've had just some crazy thunder and lightning storms here, and a, a bit of rain. But I I have to say the lightning has just been so outrageous. As much as I love fireworks, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go to even a really righteous fireworks display and, and feel, you know, it's, what's been happening is just so over the top. The gods of, of lightning have been on the case. I mean, it's just radical art direction. Radical, you know? <laughs> Well, I'm glad that that's clearing up. We're uh, cloudy today. For as much as we are on point in terms of our ways of thinking and the tracks that our minds move along, we are indeed products of separate environments. And because of that, we've had nothing but bright, hot sun for going on three months straight. And the past couple days have been wonderfully, gloriously cloudy and maybe even a little rumbly maybe a bit of thunder. So I'm while, while you're uh, completely over it, being driven crazy by it, I'm welcoming it with open arms. Kind of like a, someone with a really bad hangover uh, versus somebody who's been dry all July and is gonna crack open a beer, right? Well, you know, it, it's, it's good that these things sort of cycle through, you know, not only in terms of the physical weather, but you and I are inclined to sort of see this more connected with with psychic uh, weather patterns as well. You know, the whole thing fits together. There's only there's one habitat in this in a sense. You know, but I'll tell you one thing that is kind of funny that I, I enjoy. Uh, the uh, bighorn sheep are a, a real uh, feature of my community. In addition to the coyotes, the coyotes, by the way, dig the thunder and lightning or they really get singing to it and howling, it's beautiful. But down below me, there's a, a really, really uh, big herd of bighorn sheep who are protected. And I think I may have mentioned that some of them have uh, little cards hanging from their antlers because they've been tagged by the mm -hmm. Bureau of mm -hmm. Land Management and they're sort of in their own group. We're the carded ones, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But down in, in, in this uh, local park, which has a spectacular view of the lake. Uh, one of the local Pentecostal churches have been gathering for sunrise services, uh, praying for rain. And one of them has uh, included some uh, Paiute uh, rain-making uh, chanting and the Paiutes are larger, and we're the southern Paiute branch, the Moapa people. So you get this incredibly strange mix of, of Pentecostal Christians uh, in a couple of, of classic uh, desert country buses that they may or may not live in, and they're down at the park, and they're doing their uh, Christian um, praying for rain, and then a couple of them are intermixing these uh, Native American chants, and in the midst of all this, there's some bighorn sheep, and it's just 
I think to myself, this is the kind of community <laughs> I like. And I like yeah. having that just down the street from me. I really do. Yes, and we want to see more of that in our world in general. You and I, when I mentioned that you and I have been talking for a bit, you have a lot of ideas about where the show is going to go, which I'll keep under wraps for now until we figure out more about it but it is very exciting i'm big into having directions now i'm big into having a to-do list that i can check off in my notebook throughout the day it's such a simple task and it's been so uh you know repeated over and over again and the kind of people who check off things from a list you're like oh i don't want to be like that you know the kind of neurotic uh, it brings me back to high school, and the girls who would always be obsessed with getting an A <clears throat> always struck me as some just annoying. And then those girls grow up to be people with checklists. But I was sleeping on checklists, because checklists have uh, really helped life in general. You know, anxiety just disappears when you have a checklist, because anxiety is often so free-floating, and so... Uh, nebulous that when you boil down everything you have to do during the day what, what do you have to be anxious of you're not forgetting anything it's right there on paper so this is it's funny that this show for the past month or so the first five minutes have always turned into uh, David raving about journaling but uh, I'm going to keep beating that drum look it's keep vital it, it's vital and it, it ties in with uh, a couple of the major tools that we've rolled out and I have uh, three more extension tools that I think are uh, just incredibly uh, they're beautiful they're simple and they're useful and they tie into the idea of uh, journaling of inventory of of articulation uh, because the, the free-floating nature of, of anxiety is exactly the defining characteristic that makes anxiety potent and insidious and the, the, the force of negativity that it is and we can dismantle that you know disarming you know uh, disarming the mist so to speak uh, mm -hmm. okay oh, wow well, um, um, you've got your words You've got your words, got words. for uh, yep. this episode, and I'll launch in with my uh, my band name and my aphorism, and then we'll get you working on your imaginative challenge, which is uh, it's it's good for for the journal because it's a visual one. Here's my band name, and nobody get mad at me. This is uh, I I I think it's a real possibility. Um, you know, if you were an A&R, uh, you know, rep for a, a record label, at least a, an old school record label, this would make sense. The name of the band is Epic Beaver. Epic Beaver. And they are unashamedly a big girl roller derby band from Grand Rapids, Michigan. If you can imagine, if you're, anyone remembers the Go-Go's, Belinda Carlisle, they're like the Go-Go's uh, about four or five dress sizes up on Crank and Iron City Beer. But they're fun, and the name of their first album, their debut release, is you should really get that looked at. 
which I think is, is, is kind of enjoyable. That's great. So I heard them in my That's mind. Awesome. A big girl roller derby band from Grand Rapids, Michigan, Epic Beaver. And here's my aphorism, which is in a kind of a different vein than, than uh, I've, I've gone in in the past. But uh, it's, it's important, I think. It ties into our interest in, in language. Steamed sea bass and volcano chicken read and sound as good as they taste. Mm. Yeah. Don't you think that's true? Mm-hmm. I mean, how, uh, steamed sea bass and volcano chicken. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. fun to say, you know? Yeah, volcano is a cool word to put in front of food makes you think there's going to be a lot of melted cheese, which is a big selling point for me. Yeah, or, you know, <coughs> some sort of indulgence or strangeness or fun, you know. Uh, it, I mean, in volcanoes, you know, Jesus, they're such powerful things, you know. Uh, my sister's been over in Hawaii, and uh, she and I walked across a volcano, which you can't do anymore because the thing erupted. And the, some of the great parts of the world are all about volcanoes. And volcanoes are so part of sacred mythologies around the world. And I think wherever you see the word, it's just, I feel good about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too, definitely. It, it, uh, there was a, a program on National Geographic called Welcome to Earth, where Will Smith goes to various locales, exotic locales, and engages in dangerous activities. The first one is really interesting because he goes down into a volcano with a volcano expert to plant a sensor along with his companion who is a blind man. And so you get the blind man's sensate, the the haptic, tactile sensations of what he feels as he's walking down into the danger zone of this volcano. You know, it's sputtering, and <laughs> you see big rocks the size of, oh, I don't know, maybe maybe this Pampers box that I'm looking at, but a rock, right, kind of, you know, being belched out of this volcano. And it's very tense. It's very well made and shows you, uh, from a storytelling perspective, how if you have a good enough hook, in this case a volcano that could erupt at any time, that does most of the work for you. Well, you know, think what a great symbol of volcano is. You've got a tit and a vagina in one. I mean, it's magic. You know, it's so intense. And you and you reclaim beautiful yeah. sort of, you know, kind of disruptive, uncomfortable, uncomfortable verbs like belch. You know, I mean, if belch, someone yeah. if someone sits down next to you on a New York subway and belches, that's not really very appealing. But mm-hmm. if a volcano belches, oh wow, you know. And the sulfur yeah. sounds, and uh, one of the greatest experience. Yasser is is the uh, one of many volcanoes in the Vanuatu chain, uh, on the southernmost island of Tana, which is where I spent. Mm-hmm. That's the hub of the cargo called the John Fromm Cargo Company. Uh, it's Sulfur Bay. This beautiful village below them, and the beach is black volcanic sand, right? But up above is Yasser volcano. And to sit, and there are these just absolutely lunar, bizarre planes behind it, you know, ash planes that are, you really, you know, not surprisingly, that's where the spirits of the dead, you know, live. 
and you, you go mm-hmm. up there and, and of course you see ghosts. I mean, if you're not seeing ghosts, there's something wrong and you do not need any kava or any sort of psychic substances to see them. But to sit on the rim and to hear this, you know, constant murmuring, uh, deep, incredible, low frequency, magma, earth, you know, sound, and then the counterpoint of the absolute insanity at higher frequency of the cicadas is just like, I mean, there's no way not to go into a deep trance state there, you know. Mm, and that sounds cool. And then to, th- I mean, James Cook uh, stopped there back in the 18th century. He came by the island on a full moon night and saw the plume of smoke out of the water, you know. And you can still go out in the water there and see that. And it's just, I don't know, I, I think volcanoes just, are they are definite magic for a serious reason, you know. Oh, definitely. Yeah, without a doubt. I uh, I definitely want to be able to see one at some point. That'll be on my bucket list. Not sure that uh, Rios will follow me in that little adventure, but that's okay. You know, some some stuff is just for the boys. Well, you know, Mexico calls. I think you, you've had experience with Mexico, and you guys have, you know, Spanish, you know, in play. Uh, we forget that you know Mexico is the most biodiverse country in the world. I think that's often forgotten about. We think of you know asylum seekers and drug cartels and poverty maybe, and that's really unfair because it's such a rich and beautiful. But you know the the volcano in, in, in you know the Mexican landscape and mindscape that might be a great place to start. You know? Yeah, I agree. All right. Okay. Hit me with my hit me with my chest. All right. Well, we're going to look at uh, an important uh, female thinker, Florence Goodenough, uh, who was a psychiatrist, psychologist, experimenter, uh, cognitive theorist, and she developed the original draw a man test which has not been surprisingly updated to draw a person test. (laughs) And an individual named Dale Harris has contributed to that idea. So now it is the uh, Goodenough Harris draw a person test. and when you uh, share your work, which we'll have to on, on air, we're gonna we'll need a description. But this is a, a visual thing which we will get you to post, like your uh, maze map of time, the spider maze map of time, uh, and that beautiful uh, diagrammatic presentation of OCD which you sent me, which I think that we've got. To shared with listeners because you're a good visualizer and part of what we're interested in part of the idea of articulation is is language and also visualization that concept of abstraction that's a deep deep human genius uh, it's a core anthropological idea it's so big that we we have to come at it from a bunch of different angles 
but at the end I'll share some of the scoring uh, categories of how these drawings get analyzed. But I will uh, leave you as a starting point with this thought from the author or creator of this test idea, this diagnostic herself. It is not wise to attempt to use this test with bright children of more than 12 years old. So we're already in violation of, of the diagnostic uh, protocols and guidelines uh, because you certainly qualify as bright and more than 12 years old. But we are, we're always breaking the rules a little bit. So mm -hmm. we're going to go ahead with a good enough draw a person test uh, and then hear your descriptions of that. And then I've got some notes on, on how we might interpret that. And if we could find a way to post your results, we might uh, get a little bit more insight into uh, your mind consciousness uh, problem solving approach to the world, which is always what we're looking for. We're looking for more, more data on, on the strangeness within so that we might better understand the strangeness without. I was, while you were talking, I was looking for this person, and I finally just Googled the draw a person test on my phone, because uh, I couldn't figure, it's, the name is literally spelled good enough. Yeah, good enough, yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. I, was trying a, I was trying a Russian kind of like with a V. Oh, sorry, I should have spelled it out. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, no, that's fine. No, 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 it's fine. It, I, I, I'm pointing it out because it's funny, uh, and I think... A, a pretty fun little uh, metaphor there that you know I'm, I've tried four different little ways and it's like no it's, it's good enough it's, it's kind of like a weird mix of Florence Nightingale and Pussy Galore some of the names in James Bond you know women you know you think how, how much like if you had a, a, a female psychologist you know maternally creating a diagnostic test for children wouldn't Florence good enough be almost Unbelievable as a name, it's perfect. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it, re it, it really is. It really is. Well, and I think what might be fun with this is I have about half my page uh, already filled up with doodles and notes. Uh, so I'll use the bottom half for my draw person, and then take a picture of the whole thing. Okay, that might be fun. Okay, and then and and along the way, you will you will it just invariably without question fall into one of the many uh, tiger traps regarding <laughs> the analysis mm -hmm. you know that's what these tests are, are insidiously beautifully all about you know it's just I love I the idea of so my you know, my goal my goal is is my goal is to just draw a person yeah that's it that's got it yeah okay. yeah that's it yeah okay the nakedness of that act is is the starting point yeah Okay. All right. I like this one. I like its simplicity. That's, that's nice to me. Um, so while I'm drawing a person and slipping in words clandestinely, uh, which was not one of the words, Chris, what would you like to talk about today? Okay. Well, I think this is, uh, is important just at large, but it has some topicality to it. Uh, Michael Heiser, uh, his last name is spelled H-E-I-Z-E-R. It's sometimes spelled H-E-Y, but the 
EI is, is, is uh, the more uh, usual, and I think what his choice is. Uh, he's a really, really important uh, living artist. He's now 77. He is one of the major figures in the so-called land art or earth art movement. Uh, Robert Smithson might be another sort of name that people uh, have heard of, and it's an interesting story about the two of them because uh, he introduced Robert Smithson, who was from New Jersey, to the western states of America. Uh, Heiser was born in Berkeley, as I was. He uh, spent a lot of time in uh, Nevada and the Southwest. His father, Robert Heiser, was a very, very significant anthropologist of, uh, on the archaeological, physical sort of side. Uh, took him to places uh, like Mexico, uh, Mexico proper, then the Yucatan, uh, Egypt. Uh, he had an enormous sort of background in, in giant, monolithic, uh, constructed uh, sculptural art. Um, and he was a, a sort of 60s dropout, revolutionary, uh, anti-establishment figure. Uh, he did go to art school, but it didn't work. He was really one of those hands-on, physical, uh, capable, skilled artists that we kind of have lost to a great extent. The, the art schools don't teach this, and we kind of frown on the, uh, well, frankly, the masculinity of, of what he's doing. Um, but he started in the 60s uh, breaking completely free of the gallery context. Uh, he started doing motorcycle uh, drawings in the desert, as in using his motorcycle as the, the paintbrush so to speak. So photography was a very important medium for him to capture the work and to display it and to, you know, take it back to New York. Um, Walter Di Maria was a mentor figure. Uh, he, Di Maria was, was a slightly older uh, and Di Maria is famous for the lightning field in New Mexico, which is a spectacular thing. If you've, uh, it's hard to see physically. Uh, it's worth the effort. Um, but if you ever get to just watch any of, of the video of the time-lapse stuff of it, it's a beautiful, beautiful creation. But Di Maria, Heiser, and Smithson were three of the major figures in, in the 60s and 70s to break entirely free of the New York gallery scene uh, and any kind of museum uh, context to really explore using landscapes as their palettes and to look into notions both of grand historical ideas of construction and also extreme minimalism, very uh, minor but significant conceptual gestures. Uh, Heiser became famous for a work which is I've spent many, many hours at. It's, it's very nearby where I live. It's in Overton, Nevada. Uh, on top of Mormon Mesa. It's called Double Negative. And it effectively is two giant trenches carved into the earth uh, with bulldozers. He's a big bulldozer, earth, you know, heavy machine guy. Um, again, that's a kind of, you know, an artist that we don't sort of see that much of anymore. Um, more at home, you know, covered in uh, 
motor oil than uh, you know fancy you know Chelsea gallery opening. Um, but his his approach was was negative spaces, negative uh, ideas of sculpture, rather than building up or laying something down, digging, you know. And I think that, mm-hmm. that his influence there was, was enormous. Uh, Smithson, as people may know, was uh, the force behind uh, the spiral jetty, uh, which is uh, on the shore into the Great Salt Lake in Utah. Mm-hmm. And I've camped out it's there. Uh, it's, it's quite a beautiful, amazing thing. Um, Smithson was a tremendously articulate writer and a great critic and um, he was a real hero of mine. He died in an airplane crash at just age 37 while surveying the work in western Texas called Amarillo Ramp. So his career was cut short uh, back in the 1970s, but his beautiful uh, collection of writings, the, the writings of Robert Smithson, um, is a fantastic uh, illustrated book. It's published by Holt. Um, and his um, wife, Nancy Holt, uh, was also a very significant uh, earth art figure and opened up the doors for a, a lot of uh, female artists in the field. Now it's become something that has been really uh, explored by many, many interesting women. And there are several of them that live in my state that do have these really intense capabilities of getting out of tractors and big earth graders and doing some odd things. So uh, a traditional sort of masculine art form has been really uh, colonized and reinvented from a feminine perspective. So there's a lot going on. But Heiser has just opened a work that he has been at work on for 50 years, literally 50 years. It is in the Basin and Range National Monument area, which is about uh, 200 miles north of Maine. Uh, it was land protected uh, by Obama. Uh, Harry Reid, the late Harry Reid, who was a, just a tremendously important figure in Nevada politics, protected the site. It was intended to be overtaken by a railroad uh, dedicated to transporting nuclear waste. Um, Heiser has dealt with uh, accidents uh, with the earth machines, a fire that uh, really claimed, nearly claimed the life of a friend and ended that friendship, Uh, addiction to morphine uh, because of of pain-killing needs after that. He's uh, really, he walks in great pain. He's considered Reclusive. Um, he lives, you know, partly in New York now, uh, but mainly he's been living out in his, this ranch in a very strange little community in Nevada. And I had a very odd adventure going up to, uh, not to visit him because I didn't want to intrude or, or try to intrude in any way. Um, uh, he's very jealous of his privacy, but he's, uh, it's a very odd life that he's lived in total commitment to building what is a genuine city-sized work out in the desert. Uh, It is remarkable. Uh, People should Google on some of of the work. There are pictures that are revealed. Um, You have to apply to gain entry because so many people want to see what what he's done. I put my application in and I got a nice note back 
from the foundation that is, is going to manage it in, in perpetuity. Um, but it has been a monumental work, a monumental work of, of love, skill, uh, tremendous dedication. It's, it's absolutely bizarre to me that he, he's managed to get the involvement and support of the people that he has. I think this is one thing that I, 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 I think that it would be interesting for us to talk about, David, about this, uh, this notion of collaboration on that scale. When you and I have seen such lack of collaborative loyalty in, yeah. in the writing field. Yes, 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 um, yes, yes, yes. So that's kind of, of where I would, uh, there, there are several points of, of, of you know, angles of, of ways to, to talk about his work. Um, but I, bef the last thing I would say, just as an introduction, is that Michael Govan, that's spelled G-O-V-A-N, is the director of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, who has been Heiser's great champion and has really made uh, this work possible. And Heiser's survival, I think, possible in a way. Um, there are very few people who are, uh, I mean, he's just been so uh, supportive in a deep way of this profoundly talented but very difficult, eccentric, uh, hard to, to place individual who um, is, is been very uh, competitive in the art world. He and Smithson had a, had a feud that he's never been able to, uh, uh, even, you know, Smithson has been dead since 1973. Uh, none of his, none of Heiser's good, goodwill has returned in that time. Uh, so it's a difficult individual but obviously someone of enormous talent and enormous ambition. I can't think of a work of art uh, that is on a scale that, that compares. Uh, and Dave and I started off the series looking at, at some of the great outsider artists, reclusive, perhaps crazy visionaries doing beautiful private cathedrals and secret encyclopedias and uh, you know, theme parks and shrines of their own imagination. Well, Heiser also belongs in that. He is represented by some of the great galleries of the world now. He does have a multi-million dollar foundation. He is an art, you know, world figure. But nonetheless, he's also a desert, you know, rat uh, out creating some yeah. bizarre monument to his own <laughs> ego and dreams and visions. So there's a lot to say there. But I encourage people to check out the YouTube uh, lecture by Michael Govan, director of uh, LA County Museum, because it is one of the most beautiful articulations of uh, what an art scholar and supporter and champion of an artist, what that really looks like and sounds like. Uh, Govan is a little bit slick. He, you know, he's raising funds. He's he's got a lot of. He's going to meetings. He's an administrative person, but he's also a very fine art scholar. But he's a tremendous representative for, for Michael Heiser, and I think for anyone creative, if you are thinking about the kind of champion and supporter, patron, men, you know, figure of of help. Uh, Michael Govan is a, a really a, a good model of, of what we're all looking for, uh, and maybe we don't, you know, don't deserve it, but 
that's at least the model that we're looking for. So David, that's what I've been kind of thinking because you, we, we have talked about history. Uh, we've talked about the archeology span of tomorrow, uh, whether iconography and, and, and visions of, of history that we've had to date can be extended into the future. Uh, this seems like such a, a monumentally strange work of art, profoundly American, uh, profoundly outside uh, galleries and, and the established museum context. Uh, I thought that would just be a good, good thing to, to throw around today. I love it. And one of the things that I want to start off with, because as you're talking about Michael Heiser and uh, Smithson, Robert Smithson, it reminds me of my current favorite art collective, which is called Final Hot Desert. Ooh, I, I believe they're based... Yeah. Yeah, I believe they're based in Utah. And if you go to their website and you click on their past works, they've got um, all over the world, they've got artists who are working with landscape. Uh, there's this bit, the most recent one is called Monofilament. And it's essentially taking, uh, they take a 2003 Toyota Corolla and drive out to uh, Swing Arm City in Utah, which is another that's just great. Can you imagine? Swing Arm City. And they use camping equipment to create these bizarre alien-looking life forms in the desert. Another good one is uh, reworking Victory Over the Sun, which took place in the Bonneville Salt Flats. And it's a bunch of works of sculpture meant to address the, the opera Victory Over the Sun, a Russian, uh, um, about the revolt of the... the, the, the the sun is in revolt against the romantics or, or something like that. I'm kind of going off of what I can remember of this, but it's just these pictures that they take of the Bonneville salt flats with these sundials and uh, strange works of metal sculpture that almost look like gym equipment mixed in with alchemical representations of the sun. Um, the tradition is definitely alive and well, and I'm sort of fascinated about this working with area too, as I begin to saw apart the branches in my backyard and get ready to strip them and stain them and work on my stick chart. I'm beginning to look at things in my backyard like, um, in fact, I'm a little upset that I haven't gotten a go on it quite yet because my lawn is dead, but I think that there's something cool that I could do with the sticks in a dead, yellow Oklahoma yard. Uh, thinking about this kind of stuff is directly linked to the externalization of thought brought on by my notebook and journaling practices, where, you know, I no longer um, want my work to be solely confined to a page, right? I want it to be in conversation with my environment. And I think that that, besides being a deeply human thing to do, I think that it's, it's such a statement sort of against this constant scrolling and feed and online life, right? I mean, it's it's a direct engagement with what's around you, right? I might even, I've seen some badass uh, cardinals, some bright red male cardinals lately, and uh, maybe like a birdhouse too, like a cool birdhouse. That's, that's totally where my mind is at right now. I think that is absolutely uh, fantastically well said. Very simple terms, very earthy and earth-moving, you know, like in keeping with, with the topic. But 
but a beautiful extension of the journal idea, the handwriting idea, the physicality idea into the larger world of, of your backyard. And, and the, the entire world should be our backyard if we're alert and, and thinking like Solomon Islanders. Uh, that's the whole point of, of really, I think, uh, an informed consciousness. If we could keep our energy and, and enthusiasm levels up, we would be in that frame of mind. But I think that notion of a conversation with the world, a conversation with habitat uh, and physical environment is, is, the, is a very, very big theme of ours. It, it ties in with the indigenous uh, people, the hunting and tracking uh, mindset. It, it, and it's an, it's an aspect of, of Heiser's work that I think needs to um, be fleshed out because a lot has been said about uh, his notion of, of negative abstraction, of carving, uh, say, uh, kind of a circumflex figure into uh, the massacre dry lake space or double negative, which is this, you know, just a giant trench the length of the Empire State Building, which was kind of magical to him. Um, and in Gauvin, Michael Gauvin's lecture, he, he does do a beautiful counterpoint of the very famous picture of Jackson Pollock, uh, you know, standing on his canvas in his Long Island studio and, and doing the drip paintings. So he's no longer working on, you know, uh, facing a canvas. He's within the canvas. And then this is juxtaposed with photographs of Michael Heiser uh, out, this lone figure uh, surrounded by these beautiful curving lines created by his motorcycle, you know, in the desert. And Gauvin's, uh, you know, notion is it's, it's the artist becoming part of the work, placing himself or herself within the, the canvas or the frame or the subject. And that's all, you know, very, that's a beautiful point, well made. But I think that the, the other more interesting point to me, which is not often, it is about the, the nature of the conversation. And that, I think, is the, is the frame that you put onto it. And this notion of journaling, of physicality, of making a physical stick chart map, of psychically locating our incorporeal being with very physical matter around us and creating that link in a conversation sense. That, I think, is something that, that really needs to be said about um, art at large, uh, possibilities of healing and re-ceremonying the world. But certainly about Heiser's work, I, I, I don't think that people have really uh, they often just jump to uh, kind of the conceptual statement or gesture that's being made. That's a word that you know art critics often use, is the gesture. And mm -hmm. when you think about it, I mean, Pollock was of course making a gesture by, by stomping around on, on canvas and, and being within it. But his conversation was still kind of with uh, the New York establishment art world. Um, whereas Heiser's conversation is 
Yeah, he is, of course, dealing with the art world, and he's dealing with funding, and through people like Michael Govan and this foundation, he's had millions of dollars of corporate sponsorship. He's created a city, so he needed millions of dollars. But nonetheless, there still is that conversation with the actual land, the earth, the, the air, the weather. Uh, there's, there's that physicality of conversation. And I think that's worth exploring of, of, of how that, I mean, how do you, do you see that kind of, of uh, endeavor as inherently of value unto itself as process independent of some product or let's say destination? Absolutely. Okay. That's the whole that's the that's the mode right there because for the, you know my going on you know it's weird to say this but it's going on 20 years now that i've been writing <clears throat> with an eye towards publishing and if there's one big bad in my estimation now in terms of art it's publishing it's um you know hollywood it's these it's these end goals that I see people so wrapped up in and how they are forced to turn so far inwards it's like a it's not even a snake eating its own tail it's a man filleting himself right it's just like there's no outward interest in interacting with the world in general it's all about you know what can I create out of my own genius that I can, you know, then present and be paid for. And we all like being paid. Don't get me wrong. Being paid is great. But the other bit that you mentioned, particularly about Heiser's relationship with Govan, is so important. And that's, I've been trying to move away from this in my own writing. But the, the idea of authorship, I've been working with four other writers and we get together on Zoom every month we brainstorm an idea for a short novella we parse out who's going to write what and we all do it and then as the editor it's kind of my job to put all the pieces together and smooth it out and turn it into a something that resembles an actual novel an actual story um but working with other people collaboration you and i do this podcast the psychic defense manual i'm I'm working on a novel that's just me right now, and that's fine because everything needs balance and black needs white and yin needs yang and all that kind of stuff, but largely my focus is no longer on this kind of... Because you used an interesting term uh, when you said that Heiser was building this kind of monument to the ego, and that is what it is, and maybe Heiser doesn't know this, but you, 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 know, you also point out that there's this whole team around him that is necessary for this thing to get done. And I that's what is compelling to me. That's what's compelling about Final Hot Desert. I think it's I think it's three main guys maybe, but I don't I can't recall their names. No, it's two guys, but I can't recall, recall their names, but they're working with you know, artists all over the world. Their most latest exhibition was with a, a kind of a sunken trawler in uh, in Scotland, I believe, on the coast of Scotland. And um, this whole idea, this all ties together. Interacting with the environment, being in conversation with an environment, and then also being in conversation with your art through a prism of 
friends and loved ones. Right. So that your so that your ideas are never you know, this idea of the workshop is huge in writing where you get these critiques from snotty grad school students or, you know, teachers who are just kind of failed writers themselves or, you know, aspiring not to be too nasty about it. But the idea of the workshop or the idea of the, you know, um, uh, the, th this idea of, uh, why are these names slipping me now? Um, I'm thinking of the author who is, who's very, Carver, right? Carver and his editor. Um, and, and the idea of like how much of it was the editor and how much of it was Carver. Gordon Lish. Um, yeah. Lish, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was going crazy. I could remember uh, the son, Atticus Lish. But, um, but anyway, the, the idea of collaboration in writing is always colored by this idea that the, that the writer is a, is it's books are monuments to the ego. There's something that I created. And I just found that to be as I went on, I was like, well, that's just not true, right? I'm kind of constantly, hey buddy, I'm kind of constantly writing, uh, you know, my own versions of books that I've loved and I'm taking influence from everywhere. And I'm a very sociable person. I have two podcasts. So anybody who's listening, if you can't tell, I, I really enjoy interacting with other people. And I don't, I don't have the urge or the desire to be a kind of figure like a Stephen King, right? This, this genius who's putting forth all of this work into the world. I would much rather have my art be a constant, interactive, conversational performance with other people, because I think that that's the next stage, the tribal stage of art making. Right. Well, look, I think, you know, certainly the, the, the sociology of, of what Heiser is doing is, is absolutely important. Just, it's so much a part of, of the, whole, the whole art. It's not just the means of, of, of the creation, it's, or a precondition of it. Uh, and, and he can be mentioned in the same context of uh, James Turrell, who's still alive, similar sort of age, who is famous for his works dealing with light and, and the psychology of perception. Uh, another very interesting artist. He's also interviewed by Michael Govan. That's also a very good YouTube video. Uh, Turrell is involved in a... Uh, he, he doesn't consider himself a land artist in the, the Heiser or Smithson category, but he's involved in a major project uh, in Arizona um, about a, a, a huge naked eye observatory in a volcanic crater which he acquired the rights to. So we're back to, uh, it's called the, the, the Rodin uh, Crater. Uh, we're back to volcanoes. But we can also think of Christo, you know, the artist um, who, he did do some gimmicky things in the sense of wrapping buildings and doing various things. But for people who uh, may have heard of his most famous work, Running Fence in California, I, mean, I think that is one of the most beautiful aesthetic things I've ever seen. But as the, the great documentary uh, of, you know, kind of you know, really sort of cataloging the project shows that the art has a great deal to do with the collaboration within the communities involved and, and the meetings with people 
and the getting agreements and approvals and getting that sense of ownership and participation. And it's really, in a way, although these are great infrastructure, engineering, uh, landscape, architectural projects, um, they're ceremonies. They're ceremonies. And they, they make me think a little bit, sadly, of kind of the endeavor of, of writing and certainly the endeavor of, you know, an individual photograph or just a canvas. You know, it seems a little bit solipsistic and, and, and not, really, not really a conversation. You know, it sounds like a monologue. Yeah. And, and here are these great conversations that are involved. I mean, 50 years, can you imagine? I mean, I don't know if there's anyone yeah, that we can yeah. think of on that level. Yeah, and it's great. You know, it's this image of this grizzled guy, too, this tough guy, this, you know, this dude who works with the earth. And I think, again, it's all about the balance between those two things. Because in my, uh, what I was saying earlier, you know, it's possible that I'm coming off as sounding like, you know, that that's uh, not also a viable way to make art. <clears throat> I think, <laughs> in a weird way, I think that not having a conversation and sort of privately, perhaps solipsistically, creating your own masterpiece in private is good, again, if it's in conversation with something else, right? And this is something I think some people get and some people don't. And that is that, you know, um, the, the, the private, you know, the throne of the third heaven, that guy was not in conversation with anybody. Right. He kept to himself, and he, he just kind of did his own thing. So it's, you know, it's all about, you know, a landscape being populated with different methodologies for expressing the human experience. What, what, where I'm coming from, though, is in a, is in a time, it's in a time of print-on-demand. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like it's in a time of you know, not just print on demand, but but massive issues with uh, with with solipsism and with people taking you know selfies and being completely self-absorbed and the, the the balance is out of whack is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there are a couple of interesting things about this. Uh, I think that one of the 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 crucial aspects. Um, well, no, let me just not. Uh, I won't even try to put a, a structure to this. I'll just throw out some things, and we'll they'll organize themselves. I think people like Heiser and James Terrell and Krista, like Krista, can be contrasted with with these large scale, inherently social projects. These fundamental conversations with community as part of, of the art. Uh, and it is worth saying that Heiser is, is a genius in terms of design and his, his capabilities as a sculptor and uh, a, as someone who could draw. I mean, there's, there's some real skill there. Uh, he's just, he's a skilled American artist in the way that um, we just don't have anymore. I mean, when he was young and poor, he was painting lofts in New York, and he was one of the first adopters of a spray painting. And so he could paint a loft in one day as opposed to five. Uh, he's you know, just one of those really mechanically capable people who uh, we're, uh, we're just losing. Um, but if we look at those three artists who are fundamentally in conversation with 
with the environment, with communities in a social sense, getting approvals, you know, uh, meeting code, you know, that kind of conversation. And then also conversations with uh, the tradition of art and the nature of perception. What is a reasonable subject? What is the subject? You know, what, what, what's actually going on here in a way that we could connect back to, to Goya or to Vermeer or uh, to Michelangelo's sculptures, if we want to just keep it in the sculpture realm, or to the great cities, you know, Memphis and Egypt, the cities uh, in Mexico, uh, you know, Machu Picchu and Peru, you know, how those all sort of connect. We could contrast those with, with artists like Warhol and more recently Banksy and Damien Hirst and I think that would be a fascinating uh, sort of weekend uh, cannibal uh, radio seminar workshop uh, feast uh, fest and fight you know about how those all figure together um, but here's a, here's a question that um, I mean, it is somehow important, I think, that Heiser did finish, in his mind, and, and announce to the public that City was complete after all these years of work. And of course, there's been renovations to uh, some of the initial you know, pieces. So some of the work has not been just finishing it. It's been redoing and, and keeping you know, structurally sound stuff that he started with because you know 50 years half a century is a long time especially out in the desert uh, I wonder though and I what when I was looking at the the pieces which are really haunting uh, the photographic possibilities are just quite remarkable because it, it looks like a dream city uh, it has some definite references to uh, the great surrealist painters it certainly has uh, references to uh, the Aztecs and their sense of architecture, uh, the classical uh, Europeans, the Greeks, um, and China in, a, in, in, in many ways. But there is this very personalized sense of abstraction and geometry uh, that is, is private and hermetic uh, to Heiser. And, and it kind of isn't a giant uh, version of the ideal palace or, uh, you know, some of these great outsider works. Um, but I happen to think of J.G. Ballard, you know, his uh, mythologies of, of sort of ruined, abandoned resorts and runways, desolate, you know, forgotten airport runways that uh, haunt his works. And the story that I particularly uh, like, My Dream of Flying to Wake Island, uh, which is one of his famous sort of uh, very enigmatic uh, stories. There's a beautiful thing um, which The Guardian has made available. The uh, writer William Boyd reads the story. You can find it for free on YouTube. Um, mm -hmm. But it's kind of all about sort of the sense of abandoned cities, you know, which is, again, something that you and I have talked about from, from various different points of view, because haunted cities are just, you know, that's kind of deep in the, the modern mythology, you know, 
uh, from you know by the waters of Babylon to all the post-apocalyptic literature and movies and you know the Statue of Liberty on the beach and the, the original Planet of the Apes and you know th this kind of stuff is deeply part of our thinking and we groove on it and yet I don't think we really understand it uh, and here is now this newly finished, well, we won't say newly created because it has been in progress for half a century, but let's say newly created, abandoned city. What do you think that says about modernity? Not just, you know, Michael Heiser, but that's his vision. What, what, what does that say about us? Because I think it's a beautiful emblem of, of modernity. Well, that's it. the the deserted city as an emblem of modernity, um, especially one that's out in such a desolate place. It feels interesting because we all have to, for you know, for the most part, live in cities. Most human beings at this point do live in cities, and most human beings haven't really had a say in what that city looks like. It's all about what the city government decides, how much money gets allocated to what regions, et cetera, et cetera. But we're all sort of, uh, we have to kind of passively accept what our environment looks like. What's interesting about Heiser is that he decided to create his own and to put influences and creations that are fully him into this idea of designing a city. So it is interesting to kind of like take back that agency on the one hand. In terms of the deserted city as a kind of modern, strange uh, dreamscape, you know, I think it has to be because it's so, um, what's the word? Hauntological? Yes. Might be uh -huh, the word for uh -huh. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's so haunted because it's it's an abandoned city is it's kind of a, a dream of a future that didn't happen right that's what it represents to me i mean of course in the apocalypse sense it's the remnants of a past that did exist but because of where we're at, at on the timeline i think that, i think there's that weird that that sort of um nostalgic melancholy that comes along with realizing a, a promised future is not going to happen and i think some people like ballard were picking up on this uh way early in their in their careers uh he he was as far as i know he's the first who was really picking up on this. He certainly, and he had a huge influence on people like William Gibson, and uh, I think the whole hauntological sort of idea of, of there was a kind of architectural, uh, visualized, fully dimensionally realized sense of the, the, the ruins of, you know, the, mm -hmm. by the waters of Babylon. That, that notion got, mm -hmm. you know, from the vine-encrusted skyscraper, you know, uh, to it, it got streamed out and, and detailed down to, you know, a scale that, that we could re that really resonated. You know, the sense of ruins, the ruins of, of modernity and the beauty in that and the inherent uh, the inherent ruin in the new, 
You know, I think that's mm-hmm. an interesting idea. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. The inherent ruin in the new is a is a really cool line. It's uh, but I the other um, I mean, so many things that you, you, you I mean, I what I was thinking about sort of also too was the latent paths in dreams. I I find that one of the most interesting. Uh, aspects of my dream life is that all I will, not always, and this is important, but sometimes there is, is as if I've been in that world before and have a complete record oh, of understanding, yep. and I don't know how that works. There. Can I tell you something? Yeah. Can I tell you about a dream I just had? Uh, two nights ago, I had this dream um, where I was in a, a house that you find very often in Oklahoma. Um, usually when they're sort of um, kind of uh, rich kids have these kind of houses these like small cute houses that are full of plants anyway this was like a greenhouse and there's plants everywhere and I was approached by a black dreadlocked drug dealer holding an iPad and he kept showing me on the iPad dreams that I've had throughout the week right dreams that I've just had and he kept asking me, is this you? How about this one? Huh. Or is this the real huh. you? Isn't that weird? That is anyway, weird. That's sorry. interesting. I to, yeah, I like that. I, throw that, I, throw I like that, the throw that in there. I like the detail of the character. Well, dreams, you know, I think they're, they are clues to, uh, to the bigger world. Uh, but here's another thing that I think that you really picked up on, which, um, I mean, because Heiser is now... Uh, I mean, a lot of people are surprised he's still alive. He's had a lot of health problems because of injuries and, and you know, just the struggle with this, you know, amazing, uh, bizarre project out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I don't think people have talked about uh, this, this Blakeian sense. Uh, you know, Blake said, you know, I must construct my own system or, or you know, be at the mercy of, of another man. You know, that, that it's important to have one's own private mythology, you know. And, and that was, uh, I mean, and Blake did that so beautifully in, in his mind and in his, in his language. But also, of course, visually, you know, and he, he had that, that printmaking, uh, painting uh, skill of a very high level to, to bring that to a more dimensional frame. And there really is a richness of, I mean, I don't think you could subtract Blake's visual art uh, from his poetry and, and, and have a full sense of him as a, a mythographer in that way. Um, but Heiser's work is so monolithic, it, 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 it seems to be an argument against, well, we can't go out in the desert and create our own city but I like how you've kind of challenged us to rethink that, that maybe that is exactly one of our problems with modernity and, and the landscapes that we live in, is that we don't feel like we have any control. The cities kind of you know, grow around us, and, and we didn't approve of that. You know, we didn't get invited to that council meeting. Maybe we could have gone, but we didn't know about it, or maybe we're just lazy. And I think that is a very interesting aspect of the modern crisis, of this sense of uh, being disempowered, but not even understanding why we're disempowered. Is it because of a lack of, of community participation, a lack of being involved in the conversations around us, 
or is it something fundamentally out of our control? And another interesting touchstone in this regard, which you, you just remind me of, is, is Kafka's uh, beautiful piece on the Great Wall of China. I think that is really worth reviewing in this case, because there we have this great, grand architectural project, which by definition you know, takes you know, decades, generations, and may never be finished. In Kafka's world, it may never be finished. And the, the emperors may have changed. And there may not even be an emperor. And if the emperor sent a message to a peasant out in the distant uh, countryside, the message may never arrive. And so here we have these giant bureaucratic nightmare of disempowerment and never completed, never being part of it all. And yet Heiser finishes his city. I think that's a really interesting uh, dialectic there. And it's a dialectic yeah. of combat, you know? <clears throat> right, right. Because all that it's really missing, as far as I understand it, is its utility as a city, right? So it would require, I, I mean, I guess maybe running water and people to populate it. But it's a very interesting semi-communitarian idea, the ability to make your own... Uh, place your own city in your own image and, and to you know I, I kind of love like I don't love that he hurt his body in this way but I do love the idea that he that it took from him the same as he was taking from it and it gave to him the same as he gave to it there is something I mean we're all gonna die our bodies are going to break down uh, if this has taken 50 years how old is Heiser at this point 77 so not not very old, but old. Um, but it's it's kind of it, you know. If you're gonna go out, is there a cooler way to go out than because you know you were, you know, because of fire and heavy machinery and you know being out in the middle of nowhere inhaling, who knows how many industrial chemicals? I mean, that to me seems much cooler than being on one of those rascal scooters at a Walmart shopping for, you know, macaroni and cheese before your heart kicks out. Exactly, exactly. I think that's, I mean, I think the nobility of it and, and the heroism, the sheer heroism of it is, 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 is really intense. Although, you know, what I, what I do think might, and there is scope for further investigation, uh, because I think that you and I have a very balanced view on this and that we do have implicitly a great admiration for a figure uh, such as Heiser, he's so unique. There's not really sort of you know really uh, he is unique. Full stop. He, there isn't so unique. Unique is an absolute. Uh, but nevertheless, I think that because of his age, because of this, I think that there there will be an art uh, institution, art establishment tendency now to kind of enshrine him without uh, commentary and and dissection. And I think one of the things that, say, you and I could approach is, and I like your, your, the use, I, I think communitarian is a beautiful word. Um, you know, what, what's missing from the city, well, is, is kind of some pretty fundamental things of, of people and utility. People, uh, yeah. You know? People, utility, right. And right. I, I think that, I mean, is it uh, a metropolis or is it a necropolis, you know? 
right? I love the word necropolis. Yeah, yeah. It's such a cool, cool heavy metal word, necropolis. So cool. But you're absolutely right. Which one is it, right? Is it uh, at the end of the day, if if this you know if the city killed him, it's weird because it like in a sense already contains his ghost, right? So it's uh, it does have uh, you know I've seen pictures of it. You sent me you've sent me some things. It does have an eerie feeling to it. Yes, right? it does. It's not, yes, it it's does. not lively. You know what I mean? It's not. It's not a you know a suburban, a bunch of suburban homes where people can have you know gardens and stuff. It's just, it's almost like uh, like ruins on like the the Dune planet Arrakis or whatever. You know, it's yeah. it's very it's very spooky and and so it's it's kind of like I do like the, this idea. I like it's I like it's kind of initial impetus and it's kind of halfway to a, literally a place where i would want to live maybe with let's say eight thousand people right uh all with that same kind of spirit right all sort of working together that uh, could be in the desert the desert would be fine but to create something that we can all if not agree upon all have a hand in and um yeah, I don't know. It's 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 definitely, uh, I think, a heroic and and beautiful uh, idea given form through performance, action, uh, and interaction with environment. It's just it's very it's very cool. It is very cool, and it does raise some disturbing questions. I think the word eerie is absolutely appropriate. Certainly, it's it's geometric abstraction. Uh, the fact that it does not incorporate, uh, say, cacti or Joshua tree or, you know, organic forms within it, you know, directly. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of things that might be needed to make it more uh, human-oriented, which is kind of what a city you know, suggests. Um, I think it might be worth, for listeners who have the time, to review Lewis Mumford's great work about the idea of cities. Uh, Mumford was a great theorist about that, and I think it's an important work in, uh, in the study of, of, of the modern age. Uh, and I think we mentioned it in our reading, recommended reading list for the Psychic Defense Manual. If not, we'll, uh, we'll include it. Um, because there are so many issues involved in this. Uh, it really is something for, for people to, uh, to think about. And what, I mean, I'm living in, in Boulder City, which is the home of the Hoover Dam, and I've been writing and thinking about this great infrastructure uh, creation of the 1930s. I mean, think of it during the peak of the, the Depression. Uh, it managed to, you know, to get through as an idea. Seven states were involved, uh, two countries at least, uh, one could argue Canada is, is nominally involved, but certainly the U.S. and Mexico. An enormous amount of collaboration. I mean, it, it, to me, it's a work of, of truly global scale, uh, from the engineering to the labor to the social cooperation. Uh, it's very hard to imagine that level of cooperation on any kind of infrastructure um, project in America today. So I think it's interesting in a moment where America is so divided and where anything, you know, physical that is also social and of course therefore financial 
but has some conceptual design elements too. To get that actually achieved is a miracle almost, you know? I think this is a kind of miracle of collaboration. Um, so what that may be the, the one thing that everyone can take out of this, but uh, we might revisit this when people have had a chance, If you, for listeners who have not seen any of the, the photographs, and this is the way that most of the world will experience this environment. Um, I think there are some interesting problems with that uh, and also some really cool things about it. There's a sort of hermetic sacredness to it as well as a grand public gesture. You know, it's both at the same time. Um, That's a really, just before we wrap, because I can feel that we're winding up, but before we wrap up, it is interesting, right, that it's kind of through everything we're saying, though, because you have to be on a waiting list, which I respect, it is sort of perpetuating that, uh, you know, that kept apartness yes. that a lot of city places have, right? That this is this is private property. It's still beholden to the private property model. So maybe something like this, but with a kind of, uh, I don't know, a kind of vanquishing of that, of that ethos of it being, you know, mine and not for just anybody to visit. That's, it, that's very not communitarian of it, right? Exactly. That it's not just open to exactly. the public. Exactly. And I think this yeah, is something that tricky. needs to be explored. Because, you know, it, in the same sense as we have game reserves, you know, and national mm -hmm, parks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, national park is a kind of the beautiful model of openness and publicness. Uh, game reserves in places like Africa are, are, you know, really kind of, you know, luxury, you know, eco-tourism things for, for the very wealthy. This has a kind of anti-communitarian quality to it at the same time as it's this enormous public conversation with both community and, and time and, and land. Uh, so there's a very interesting contradiction there that, that I think, uh, I'm, I mean, I would love to, to really just wander around that topic. Um, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's complex, it really is. It, it seems to reinforce yeah. some real art world negatives. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, mm -hmm. you could contrast the great public park, Central Park, Prospect Park, Hyde Park, the botanical gardens, uh, you know, that are, you know, were designed for the public good. Uh, and, and this is not quite on that level. Uh, this has mm -hmm. some real contradictions mm -hmm. in it. Um, and I, I think those are, are very, very worth um, exploring. Absolutely. Um, some more to yeah. say about it, but it's, it's, it's incredibly cool that it, that it is, uh, I think, finished from just from, a, a, you know, from his personal standpoint of, you know, oh, yeah. a job As well a hero's done. journey thing. <laughs> yeah, right. As a hero's journey, it's awesome that he got it done. And, you know, and the questions that it raises are, you know, they, they don't, every good thing has, has questions. You can have questions about it. Right, right? exactly, so. exactly. And, and I think that should be, uh, for, for thinking uh, magical people, uh, I think that should be the measure of the good thing. You know, it, it, it's not the simple breakdown. It, it's the complexity of the labyrinth that, that erupts around it, you know. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's yeah. a good thing, and and that's a good thing about relationships. Uh, everything 
back is uh, is complex if looked at in the right way. I think. I think so too. Oh, that was great. Right. Well, that, that was, was a great talk. Good, good. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think we we covered some really interesting ground, so to speak, and uh, it will come back. Uh, Mr. Heiser is 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 part of a uh, a very unique you know movement that that has a lot to say about uh, Americanness. I think uh, James Terrell is someone that we could also look at, and it's worth. Uh, he's also connected to Robert Irwin in a sense, and Robert Irwin was the right. focus of uh, our um, No Country Book Club, which we'll get back to. I think people might be wondering about that. We need to, to get back on the case with that. But he's also an installation artist looking at perception and collaboration. And uh, and one simple way to maybe round this off is a, is a, a notion of art on a scale and also but of a conceptual nature that really defies the conventional uh, commercial structure of somebody owning it and putting it on their wall or or claiming it in you know for themselves uh, mm -hmm. it's not even a question of donating it to a museum there's there's no museum that can contain it it isn't that kind of right. thing uh, the nature of the art is different so how do these people make a living? That's another question. You know, there's so many things going on here, but yeah, you know, yeah. it it mm -hmm. it makes me feel very different about you know writing and making a painting or taking a photograph. I, I and not, it's not that it, those things seem small. Uh, I think that would be the wrong takeout. But it's not a bad idea to rethink those too. You know, mm -hmm. I agree. All I agree. right. Well, are you ready to tell us a little bit about your response to the good sure. enough draw yeah. of yeah. a picture of a person, a person, person? Well, I I started drawing this person, and uh, I got done with it. And I thought, oh, that's weird. That's not who I thought. I, and I believe I've actually drawn my younger brother. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he's he's been on the mind. That's odd. I, I was just thinking, like, like who is this? Because I I sketch and doodle all the time, and I'm usually drawing guys in suits for some reason, like Secret Service agent type guys. It's just, it's because it's easy. You can make it angular, and you know it doesn't. Everybody gets the idea. But um, did you have specific questions, or do you just want me to describe what the drawing looks like? Well, maybe I'll take you through uh, the scoring cool. criteria on this. Um, but I, I, I would there. There's one very interesting thing to start off with is that uh, originally this test was considered part of. The movement uh, uh, to define intelligence and to, to put a framework on uh, a fairly lateral uh, sense of alertness and, and uh, attention to the world. And I think intelligence testing is something we've got to, uh, to focus on at some point in the future, Dave, because it's such a fraught history. Um, Stephen Jay Gould is one of many people who have written some interesting things. It's so controversial, uh, particularly in America, where we fear any results of, of intelligence testing. 
um, because it may not be equal, you know, there may be, you know, it's right. a test, you know, not everyone. Might be some troublesome results. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's some beautiful things there that uh, that we, we need to explore. But Julian Jaynes, who of course gave us, I think, one of the great titles of all time, The Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. I, uh, mm-hmm. I want to write a Harry Parch invented harvested instrument uh chamber music piece with that as a title you know that'd be cool um, yeah i like that know, kind of a, an outsider music junkyard dog kind of gamelan piece of disassembled uh thinking but he uh made the case for it being uh related to investigations and, and diagnoses of, of schizophrenia and mental illness mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, in that sense it's related to the Zondi test I love that it's, yeah we've talked yeah, about that one. Oh, yeah that's just so wonderful um, for listeners we won't go into that now but it's another one of these insidious visual diagnostic uh, tests a lot less innocent than the Rorschach test um, which serial killers right yeah. yeah well it just shows so much more about the mind the mindset of, of these experimental psychologists than it does about the uh, prospective patients um, yeah <laughs> but the the relationship between measuring or quantifying or just giving some definition to the notions of intelligence and how those always seem to steer towards uh, either character defect in a kind of moral sense or mental illness in the sense of schizophrenia or narcissism or something of that kind. That's a fascinating comment on the notion of cognition and, and some of the problems we face in talking about human consciousness because we, we always have a very murky uh, swampland uh, to navigate from, from the get-go. But here are some of the categories that, uh, the, uh, that Goodenough herself put forward. Uh, first of all, gross detail, which is a lovely expression, I think. And she has six criteria. Head present, legs present, arms present, trunk present, the length of trunk greater than the breadth. Shoulders are indicated, abrupt broadening of trunk below neck, okay? Then attachments, uh-huh. you know, attachments, both arms and legs, uh, you know, neck. Is the neck present? Is the outline of the neck continuous with that of the head, trunk, or both? Head detail, or we have eyes, nose, mouth, nostril, what about hair? Uh, no mention of skin color there, interestingly enough. But then we have clothing. We have clothing, and and you know we have uh, it's it, you know is clothing present? Do we have mm-hmm. uh, articles of specific clothing, as in hat or trousers, shirt? Uh, is the is the draw, or is the is it free from transparencies? Um, are are the articles of clothing clear? Uh, is this a costume uh, in a sense of, of a symbolic uh, representation of clothing or is there less, you know, are the stakes a little bit lower? We've got hand details, which goes to the great cartoonist question of 
fingers you know present how many fingers you know the hand you know uh, articulation uh, is the thumb you know uh, opposed to the other fingers some basic drawing questions but some deep conceptual human questions that have been with us from the caves of Altamira and, and Lascaux, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they're in, you know, we see them in the Simpsons and every animated uh, thing that they're on, you know, Pixar, you know, it's, it goes on and on and on. Proportion, motor coordination, fine head detail, as in ears. Do you have ears on your figure? No, they're covered up by hair. Okay. Uh, and then the uh, perspective, as in profile or, or full-on, and, and then, then the dimensionality of it is full-on. And then there's this elaborate table of scores that uh, supposedly equate to uh, mental age equivalence. Mental age equivalence. But then mm-hmm. recall, though, that the, the, the proviso of not giving this test to bright children of more than 12 because they may have had some drawing experience by then and the test will have been contaminated by that experience. Uh, but also, I didn't read this one, and you'll note a key word that is no longer allowed. In finding the IQ of retarded children of, who are more than 13 years old, the chronological age should be treated as 13 only and the recorded as or below. Mm. Dude, I just have a, a, someone at my door for a moment. Let me just take a break and, and just check that out if I could. Okay, sounds good. Hang on. Yep. Hey, boss. What? this? No. Okay. Did you want more spaghetti? Which one would you like? Do you like more spaghetti? Would you like some turkey? Would you like some bites? Here, have a bite of turkey. No? No more? You're getting frustrated. You're getting frustrated. I'm not sure what it is that you want, though, son. You're getting frustrated with me. What's the matter? Here, let's go through the options here. Do you want this? No, you don't want that. Do you want, let's, let's just try Cheerios. Let's see if that's what it is. Do you, do you want more of these? Ah, it's Cheerios. It's always Cheerios. Dang. Interesting. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Um, it's all right. We can maybe edit that out. Um, <laughs> it's life in the, in the, on the mountain. Uh, Okay, well, I think that, look, I think we want to see what you did there, but it, it's interesting that uh, it makes perfect sense in a way to think about uh, a drawing being some measure of, of something. Uh, I'm not sure IQ would be what I would take away from that, but I think that it is possible to derive some psychological insights from a, a child's drawing. But I wonder like how you'll think of this you know, as Gus grows up. And I'd also call <coughs> attention for readers to the fabulous book, 
by Betty Edwards of uh, drawing on the right-hand side of the brain, which I think is a phenomenal, I mean, it's a perennial classic for visual arts-oriented people, but it's something that I drew a lot of inspiration from for my textbook, A Guide to Creative Writing in the Imagination, uh, because I want my book, although it's directed at writing, um, I want it to speak to larger cognitive uh, capabilities, which uh, drawing on the right-hand side of the brain does. It moves beyond the, the drawing aspect to, to speak to how our minds work, how we formulate notions of, of space and perspective. And some of these really deep questions that th we think they're art questions, but they're really deep conceptual philosophical questions that we're all engaged with all the time. You know, no one can tell me that perspective is an artistic issue. Perspective is a moment-to-moment mm -hmm. -moment issue. Close your eyes and try to deal with your environment, and you have relearned the importance of perspective, you know? Um, you know, I could actually, next episode, I could talk about that a lot. I'm reading <clears throat> a book right now by Hito Styrel, a German philosopher called The Wretched of the Screen. And it's about the evolution of imagery to where we are now. It's it's mostly about what she calls the the poor image, which is what we see replicated in things like memes and on the internet. Um, there might be something interesting in there. I'm only through the first two essays so far, but there might be some some interesting stuff in there on perspective that I could do like a a report back on. Well, I've just gotten uh, some of uh, your visual. Uh, Creation, and I think you've got to make this available uh, to listeners because it, it is absolutely so interesting to combine uh, any of your visuals in you know in opposition or in in tandem uh, with your language. It gives a whole other perspective, and it's. <laughs> It, I don't know if I'm, uh, I, and this is an example of how you know everything that's really worth talking about is 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 neither good nor bad, but both. I don't know if I'm incredibly it, all the more excited or all the more concerned about you. You know, <laughs> you know. You like that? I think. Yeah, it's got my doodle. It's got some doodles on there too. Oh, it's fantastic! <coughs> What's that sort of bizarre salt shaker kind of thing? What's going? It's just a, yeah. It's just it's just a salt shaker that was sitting there while we were talking. See, that's a beautiful. Doodling. You have turned something that this is a for people just listening. To the moment, it's a classic like diner. Uh, salt or pepper shaker, uh, mm -hmm. very simple but it, it, unmistakable. Uh, mm -hmm. Oddly uh, pre presented at the same size as a human figure that's been <laughs> yeah. talked about. Yeah. So <laughs> that in itself is wonderful. Um, but it's it's a t it's it's we suddenly have a mundane object uh, uh -huh. turned into a totemic piece of sculpture and that in right. itself is one of the great movements of modernity we see that in Marcel Duchamp and we see that in so many you know literal artists but in in many ways I think that fetishizing or making totemic the 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 mundane ordinary 
is is so central to understanding what the weirdness of the modern mindset is. You know, that's beautiful. It's become a piece in a game. You know, like a chess piece. Lovely. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's. I didn't even think about it like that. But I, I really, I like that interpretation. That's good. Cause yeah, it's a, a putting it next to a human form is kind of strange. Like it's not a guy standing next to a salt shaker. Well, he is standing next to a salt shaker. It's just uh, kind of an enormous salt shaker. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no. I I think it just it it really just needs to be presented on its own and then let people interpret it and and make of it what they will because it it just it raises a lot of questions. Uh, so, good lord. Oh my. Well, um, I I will get very quickly through the tool this time because uh, this has been a good extended episode. I, I again I apologize for that little break at my point, but uh, it was a, a house painter. Uh, I, I'm not going to roll out one of the big tools that I mentioned because I think we've had such a meaty episode that uh, I, I'm going to save, save it to next because it's almost, I mean, it's just, there are three that are related that needs some real uh, dissection and going over. And, and you're going to have a lot of feedback in the moment about them. We're going to kind of construct them and put them to use in a sort of performance experimental art piece. That's my idea for, for how we roll those out. So I'll just, cool. I'll leave people with this one. And I, I had in my mind uh, something that we've all probably come across it's a little uh, meme about if the world were only a hundred people, you know, this is what it would look like. I think people are familiar with, with what I'm thinking about. And we reference it in the Psychic Defense Manual. How when you come across this the first time, it, it's very, it seems very insightful and gives you a new way of looking at the world. But I would suggest that if you think about it for a little bit and not very long, it starts to completely fall apart as something that, that can really tell us anything about human culture. It, it, it's, it's the idea of a microcosm uh, in very explicit terms, but I think it's a real, it's, it's very problematic of, of what, what it purports to reveal. It, it's, it's been created with, with very rhetorical uh, goals in mind, and I think that the intelligent people will, will see through that uh, when they, if they give it a little bit of time. But I, I was thinking about that. And uh, so here's my thought experiment. Okay. And I think this is a good tool. So I think this is a little bit uh, more open ended. Uh, I don't think it has uh, a rhetorical intent on my part. And I think it can be explored uh, as people will give it the time. But the proposition is you are one of 13 people, 13 is my new uh, obsessive lucky number, you are one of 13 people who wake up from suspended animation on a space station. Okay, that's a premise that we've seen in movies, we can relate to that. There are no instructions other than technical details about maintaining the vessel. No social clues or guidelines about the pa 
passengers, all that you were provided in terms of information is that you were selected, okay? You have been selected. You personally have been chosen because you're emblematic. You algebraically and algorithmically represent other people, therefore, other groups of people. Only you're told nothing about these groups, these frames, these social criteria. You probably have questions. Many. Think about the order of those questions. Order is a very peculiar and complex notion that lies at the very heart of humanity and human culture. Okay, that's my thought experiment tool. And I think it's very handy. I think it, it, it breaks through uh, some of the uh, current uh, identitarian obsessions. Uh, it looks at algorithms and the concept of being emblematic as opposed to just representative or symbolic. Those three words need to be looked at very carefully. They're not the same. They're not the same. Uh, emblematic is more uh, associated with representative than symbolic. It's definitely not, symbolic is definitely not the fair uh, synonym. Uh, but I think that's an interesting exercise to look at. Um, it just accept the premise. You're one of 13 mm -hmm. people. You wake up on a space station. You're given no information about the social, cultural, objectives, goals, anything other than the fact that you're, you, you're there uh, for a reason. And it's up to you to sort of think about that reason. But to formulate your questions and to think about the order. David talked earlier about the, you know, we're, then our ongoing theme is the notion of journaling and checklists and inventory. These are ancient, ancient ideas that are around for a reason, you know? Taking stock. Taking stock is a beautiful, that's what an inventory is, that's what a checklist is. And to keep that kind of tool uh, vivid, active, and, and not calcified is, is one of our goals. Excellent. Okay. I like that. All right. And my tip uh, is, is really, really simple, but it's something that has come to my mind a lot. It's something I work on a lot. Uh, I had a lot of intentional exposure uh, over the years, but certainly when I was uh, around David's Edge, to extreme uh, wilderness survival. Uh, and uh, Gus is perfectly on time. And you know, some of the training that, that is offered there you know, is through people like Navy SEALs and through mercenaries and through hardcore triathlete training people or you know there's a kind of a gung-ho and uh, it, sometimes a, a very macho sort of approach to that but all of the people who, who do that really well uh, have another layer to them and they will always say that the most important uh, element of, of survival of extreme situations uh, survival in the wild and this applies to our moment-to-moment -moment life is, is the psychological aspect of dealing with ourselves, you know? Mm, that, yeah, is, right. that is the big, big <laughs> crisis. 
And I think there is a lot to be said for open water swimming. If you can at all access that, and I appreciate that it is an access problem, but we have to be capable of being comfortable within the loneliness of ourselves in order to create the magic of collaboration and sociality and relationships in the world. Uh, it really is a crucial survival skill and it's an art, it's a science, and it's a magic, you know, to be comfortable in our own being. I, I've had some remarkable experiences in uh, open water swimming alone uh, that really, uh, I've tried to, you know, do that with uh, sensory deprivation tanks, pretty formal ones, uh, like what Lily designed, but also certainly a lot of flotation tanks, more, more achievable. But a lot of, of uh, isolation experiences, um, nothing like water, you know. We all started off as kind of inverted astronauts or scuba divers inside the womb. And I think that is, is just, you know, it's primordial. And it's, it's, uh, it's an incredible psychological uh, discipline if you can access it. Um, and it always makes me think of one of my favorite lines of poetry from E. Cummings. It is always ourselves we find in the sea. You know, I think that, Oh wow! you know, yeah, it's so true. And all of the, the mechanisms of learning and growth and uh, the self-help movement. I mean, I think all of these things are so strange because they so often skirt the issue of dealing with uh, the psychic experience of ourselves and, and being comfortable right. with that, you know? Right, <clears throat> right. I, this is all very interesting and pertinent to something I've been going through this, this week where I've, I have been looking at the self, again, in terms of this OCD, and, uh, you know, I constructed that little written mental model of what's going on with it and that was very helpful to eventually completely stop doing it which i have the impetus for that being that i began to notice gus mimicking my behavioral patterns my ocd behavioral patterns which is pure <laughs> it's just a pure learning thing he just sees me doing it so he's doing it too and i think oh god this needs to stop so that kind of full stop uh, it felt like quitting cigarettes, to be honest with you. It, it had the same kind of uh, uh, anguish that's associated with nicotine deprivation, uh, nicotine withdrawal, I should say. And um, what I really learned from the whole thing, which I thought was really interesting, is that OCD is largely a, a bodily process. Uh, a, a, the body's interest in repetition gone haywire and uh, give it like a, a self-mythologizing bodily process. It's very interesting. That's a nice but, phrase. That's a lovely yeah. phrase. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. But again, it's like understanding the self. I mean, that's not a pretty thing to say, you know, that I'm a, you know, my, my meat machine likes to repeat itself and it, it self-mythologizes. You won't see that, I don't think, in a self-help book. A lot of that would be concerned with, you know, uh, you know, getting in touch with your inner child. Who hurt you as a child to give you this this, this mental illness? 
I'm beginning to be of a mind without fully dismissing psychology as a complete practice that it might just be as simple as, uh, you know, if you don't want to be OCD anymore, you just probably shouldn't, shouldn't do the things, right? Uh, <laughs> don't know if that, if that holds for, uh, I'm not ready to say that that holds for things like depression and anxiety quite yet, but it might be a, a puzzle piece to the whole thing for anybody listening. It's one of those issues, and I'm sorry this is a tangent, but it's just got me thinking. It might be one of those kind of things that people get so angry about these days where um, somebody will say, like, well, have you tried just uh, getting over it and not being depressed? And people, you know, people get very angry about that. They say, you don't understand what I'm going through. I can't just get over this. And, yeah, on the one hand, I, I understand what they're saying. I definitely, there's a difference between being depressed and being sad. However, on the contrary... It, it might be a hard to swallow piece of the puzzle to mix metaphors uh, that perhaps maybe you do just have to get over it. So anyway. Yeah, well, look, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, implicit in that is, the, is the, the really, you know, the most difficult uh, pronoun of all is, is you, you know, that sense of, of of how we define that, you know, it's it's, and I think this gets to uh, a big part of the direction I'm taking with uh, the the mem- what I'm calling the memory book, which is really about some of these larger issues because I think that we can't we've sort of ghettoized the notion of memory in in, in the very strange uh, misty world of the mind, which we're not even sure you know any idea what the you know is that the brain? No, oh, no, no, it's different. Well, yeah, how is it different? Where is it? But we, we're always going looking for ourselves. And, and what are we going looking with? You know, it's back to our notion of the woozle hunt, you know, Winnie the Pooh and Piglet woozle hunting. And really, you know, of course, they're hunting themselves. And it's a very, very interesting paradox about uh, the you. And I think that just, you know, when we talk about problems, that are so rampant of depression and anxiety, uh, I'm not so sure that it, that it isn't helpful to say, you know, just get over it. I mean, mm-hmm. if, you, if you just, I think the problem is the word just, uh, if you leave it there as if it's a you know, instantaneous thing that you can get over it, there's a problem with that. But isn't getting over it exactly what people seek? That is exactly what people say, you know. So, we'll we'll of course have more more to do uh, with that. Um, ending on the dream, which is interesting because it relates a little bit to your dream. Um, the prominent figure in mine was uh, a Latino dude who was a drug dealer and kind of a, a neighborhood baddie. Um, uh, very white t-shirt, uh, ponytail, tattoos, and he and I had had some sort of conflict. And the neighborhood was, uh, it was sort of an Angelino neighborhood. Uh, there was uh, a kind of um, what might have been a, a, a motel swimming pool that was abandoned. Sort of those 
cinder block walls that are always near, you know, second rate liquor stores. And like some of them are too high for the old guys to sit on. And so and people end up sort of leaning against them. And, you know, a couple of uh, cars that had been abandoned on the street. And then a, other, a kind of uh, a nice sort of neighborhood sort of feeling. But uh, as I was uh, walking past, I, I see this guy again in a backyard. And he's dancing with this uh, female. And I don't know if it's his sister or it seems a little bit not sort of romantic or sexual, but there's some sort of family thing going on. And my instant sense walking past is, oh, actually this dude may not be such a, an asshole as I thought. I mean, he's obviously, you know, people like him, you know, he's, he's sure. this is kind of maybe, and, uh, and just as, as I'm thinking that though, uh, I, I'm wearing these cargo shorts. They're really like these super like tactical, you know, minis, you know, super pocket sort of mercenary shorts. I've got a few pairs like this. Uh-huh. And uh, he looks over the shoulder of this gal that he's dancing with. And he says, he points to me and he says, be careful of that guy. He's got sweaty knees. You know? And that was almost going to be my band name. Sweaty Knees. Yes. I mean, I've never had... I don't even know if it's possible to have sweaty... I mean, I suppose it is if you're pouring new sweat and, you know, really hot or you're in a steam bath or something. But... so. Yeah, but it's not the first place that the sweat... You know, yeah, so emerges from it. Yeah. It was, this, I mean, the 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 takeout is this strange composited neighborhood of incredible detail that is nonetheless net, not in any one element familiar to me. This figure who has a kind of at first a sinister sort of gangster sort of element, which I then revisit as being maybe not fair to him, and then on another sort of level exposure, he kind of calls me out in this sort of other level of, well, I'm not to be trusted because I've got sweaty knees. 